Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 290. 290. Welcome aboard. Thanks for coming. So this time around, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Joe Biden's mental condition. Uh, because quite frankly, although, although I believe he was a corrupt politician back when he had all his faculties, I don't believe he has his faculties anymore. I think it is very clear He's not all there. The garble that comes out of his mouth is just undeniably someone who is struggling with either dementia or short-term memory loss. Or I don't know what the I don't know what the precise diagnosis would be, but it just seems to me that for political advantage, out of sheer political cynicism, Joe Biden's handlers are conducting a complex program of elder abuse. Given Joe Biden's history, given his levels of his corruption back when he had his faculties, it's hard to feel sorry for a man like that. But I feel sorry for a man like that. He's got people who are trotting him out. He says the most absurd things. And having said the most absurd things, everybody covers for it. Oh, he's He's healthy, he's strong, he's dynamic, he's leading the country. And this is yet one more thing. What are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? All that's necessary for us to draw a conclusion is to listen to Joe Biden talk for 15 straight minutes. Now, there's a, there's a difference. And this, I, w- I want to make a distinction because, and I want, I'll, let me be uh, even-handed about this. I think um, President Trump, if you listen, I've, I've not listened to a great, I've not listened to a lot of uh, Trump. I think I've listened to maybe 10 minutes, 10, 10 or 15 minutes of um, Trump one time. <laughs> Out of the, uh, the four years he was president, and it was right near the end, too. I, I, uh, I, I just can't handle it. It's like uh, he's all over the place. But here, here's the point. He is um, undisciplined. He's an undisciplined rambler, but he's very smart, and he's quick, and he's funny. In other words, you're, I think that when he was 30 years old, he was probably just like that, you know, just the same, just the same way, where he's really sharp and really undisciplined, very smart. He didn't get where he is by being stupid. He's really smart, but really undisciplined and just rambles all, all over tarnation in his talk. That is a personality quirk. That's the way he is. And I wouldn't attribute that to his age. And Kamala Harris is, she's even worse with the word salads than uh, the president is. But nobody thinks it's dementia. Nobody thinks, you know, I think, it, I think she's just not that smart. I think that she's in way over her head and would have been way in way over her head if she were 30 years old. So I don't think that we should just say, 
uh, someone is saying things that embarrass me personally in the way that they say them, and then automatically assign the cause of dementia. I don't think President Trump has dementia, not even close. I don't think Kamala Harris has dementia, not even close. I think she's just dumb. And the president, former president is undisciplined, but Joe Biden is being abused. This is elder abuse. It's just, and it's appallingly cynical. Uh, it's the sort of thing that everybody sees, everybody knows, and nobody is allowed to say, well, when are you going to quit it? When are you going to stop? Because they can't quit it. It's sort of like a, a movie I never saw, Weekend at Bernie's, where they had to prop up this corpse. I would be not surprised if, if, they, if they wouldn't try, try something like that. If it was uh, two days before the election and, and, uh, and President Biden died, I wouldn't put it past them to hide the fact that he had died until after the election. Uh, so there, there you go. It's, this is something that I think we need to be honest about. Okay. Now, I know it's a radical proposal. 2023, little honesty goes a long way even today. Always will be Continuing on with episode 290 of the podcast, in our study of homotheology, our survey of sins, it was just a matter of time before we came to enmity or hatred. Enmity or hatred. The Greek word for it is ekthra, E-C-H-T-H-R-A, ekthra. It is listed by Paul as one of the manifestations of the flesh. Those who exhibit characteristics like these he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we'll pick up in Galatians 5, he gives us a list of sins, and we'll just pick up in media race in verse 20. Idolatry, witchcraft, here's our word, hatred. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. But enmity is the natural condition of the carnal mind, and it is no good at all. There's nothing good about it. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Right? It cannot be subject to the law of God because it's fundamentally hostile to God, hates God. And then in James 4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? There it is. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Okay, so there is a fundamental antithesis, a fundamental adversarial relationship between God and the carnal heart. There's antipathy between them. Now, Pilate and Herod had been at odds with one another, but then they made peace over their shared condemnation of Jesus. Uh, it says in Luke 23, 12, And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. So the Bible, the Bible teaches us that not only is the carnal heart at enmity with God and harbors enmity toward God's people, but uh, the carnal heart also harbors enmity toward other ungodly people. In other words, anyone not the ego, anyone not that person's own self, there's, there's a condition of enmity. Then there was enmity between Jew and Gentile which was a carnal addition to the requirements of the Old Testament law. God's law required separation between Jew and Gentile, and over time, uh, that, 
that was supplemented with this carnal enmity. So, and you see that kind of thing when Jesus says, um, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the love your neighbor came from the Old Testament, and the addition of hate your enemy was added. That was not inspired. That was added later. It's the same sort of thing here. God says Jews and Gentiles are to be separate in order to learn, in order to instruct the Jews in the ways of holiness. But what they then did is made that separation the ground of enmity. Uh, so in Ephesians 2, 15 and 16, it says this, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile was downstream from God's requirement that Jew and Gentile be separate. But for God to require that the Jews not eat bacon, while the Gentiles could eat bacon, does not mean that you get to hate the Gentile while he's eating his bacon. <laughs> You're overshooting. The, the commandment doesn't require that much. The commandment requires that you accomplish a separation or make a distinction. Uh, the, the Jew bound the law of God on his forehead or on his uh, right hand, or he, he put something on his doorposts. He, uh, the Jew had tassels on his cloak. Those things put a distinction between Jew and Gentile. But it's a leap to then say, and therefore I should hate the Gentile. And therefore, and of course, there's going to be reciprocity when that happens. There's going to be hatred returned, and then you're off on a vicious cycle. God don't never change. He's God. So then, continuing on with episode 290 of the podcast, we come now to our book review. And the book I'm reviewing this, this go-round is Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. Now, this is one of those things uh, telling myself here. Canon Press just recently republished um, Lex Rex, a, a new edition. So if you get an edition, get that copy, uh, Lex Rex. But I had gotten a copy of Lex Rex, oh, probably 30 years ago, maybe maybe more. And it was a an old hardbound copy of Lex Rex. And I read back in the day, I read oh, a little over half of it. I think it was it was a good ways in, but but then for various reasons I don't know it was dark they were big not sure uh, I got stalled out it was one of those things where I made it most of the way through or much of the way through and then stalled out and the book wound up on my shelf with me having this awareness that I'd never finished it sometimes I don't finish a book because I just get tired of it sometimes okay this book is not worth the game is not worth the candle uh, this book is not worth my time. And so I just set it aside, having read a chapter or two. Uh, this book was not like that. It was a weighty, substantive book and well worth reading, but I just got, I just got derailed. So recently, I, I pulled it back down and put it in my plotting stack where I would read a page or two um, a day, and or maybe just one page, and just chipped away at it until I got near the end and then I was rounding into the straight and finished it out. So now I've read, now I've read Lex Rex by um, Sam Rutherford. Uh, one of the things that, one of the first things that struck me is I've also read 
Samuel Rutherford's um, letters or one collection of his letters. Now, if you read uh, Samuel Rutherford's letters, one of the things that you're going to is going to be one of the things that's going to strike you full in the face is his soaring devotional language. He is a gifted wordsmith. He has wonderful illustrations. I've read the letters of Rutherford. I've also read uh, a small book called The Loveliness of Christ, which is where someone went through the letters and pulled out quotable quotes from the letters. And uh, one of the things my wife does regularly, she just grazes in uh, these quotations, the, the loveliness of Christ, the letters of the quotations from Rutherford. His uh, reflections are sweet and pointed and poignant and pastoral and, you know, writing to people who've, they've lost a child or whatever. He's, he's just, he's just really good. An example of Rutherford there is when I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for God's choicest wines. When I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for God's choicest wines. That's Rutherford in uh, uh, his letters. But then in Lex Rex, he is writing tightly reasoned legal theory with a mastery of ancient history and law, uh, switching from Greek to Hebrew to Latin to English. It's just high scholarship on stilts, densely reasoned, right? And, uh, and it's not like it was a, an irrelevant book, because he would have been executed uh, in the, after, the, um, after the monarchy was restored. After, um, so Charles I was defeated in battle by Oliver Cromwell. Charles I was executed. Cromwell reigned for, I think it's like 15 years or so. After Cromwell died, his son Richard was not able to hold things together as the second Lord Protector, and the monarchy was restored. Charles II was called back from exile, and just a little historical tidbit, Charles II, as part of the deal of him being restored to the throne, he swore to the Solemn League and Covenant. He, he, he obligated himself under the terms of the covenant, which, of course, he, d- he didn't keep his word. And after he was consolidating power, he uh, or his ministers summoned Rutherford to uh, appear before them uh, because of his quote-unquote treasonous book. So Lex Rex is the law is king. Now, you can render, you can translate it two ways. You could say the law is king, or you could say the law and the king. But the thesis of um, Rutherford's book was that the king was under the law. Uh, the, stu- the, the divine right of kings and the the Stuart absolutism held that there was no law constraining the king. There was no law over the king that the king had to abide by. In other words, they were not they were not interested. The Stuarts were not interested in what we would call a constitutional monarchy, but rather an absolute monarchy. And Rutherford was staunch in his opposition to the absolutism of the um, of the Stuart line and basically devastates their argumentation. He just takes it apart. Well, of course, when they come back in power, they, th- they say, they argue that, um, that Rutherford was treasonous 
and he was summoned to appear to defend himself and would almost certainly have been condemned and executed for Lex Rex. The problem was that he was sick and near the end of his life already, and when he got the summons, he was on his deathbed, and he sent a message back, basically sending his regrets. <laughs> I'm sorry I can't appear before you, but I'm soon to be, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm, so, I'm soon to be called up before a, a greater and higher judge, before whom few great men and kings come. So, Rutherford argued that the king was under law. So, when you see um, King Loon, for example, in The Horse and His Boy, instructing his son, saying it's the law that makes him a king. Uh, a king can't leave his post any more than a sentry can leave his post because he's subordinate to the law. It's the law that makes him king. Lewis is functioning in, uh, in fully in line with Rutherford's argument and in line with English common law and the, the, um, the older Anglican jurists, men like, uh, men like Hooker and Matthew Hale and John Selden. So, Lex Rex, good read. If you want to get a copy, Canon Press has got a new edition. So, get that book, Go Fight Win. Thank you.